Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks, of course, to Brady and Caroline. We love that violin for leading us in worship to our God and King. Such wonderful praise. I want to thank our very own Brent Small as well for picking up the mantle of the pulpit last week while I was on vacation. Such a timely message from Hebrews on running the race. There are no Christians who are on the sidelines of faith. If we have been regenerated by the Spirit, born again unto new life, justified by His blood, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we will be in the race of faith, running it in such a way as to win. So I thank Brent for blessing us with that message. Beloved, we make no mistake, this life we are called to live will take discipline. Our spirit will war with flesh and desire, but discipline speaks to that desire with truth and with the authority of a command. It commands that desire to be silent and put to death the deeds of the flesh. If the, impulse, if the impulses of the flesh are alive, they will want to drive. And part of running the race of faith, fueled as a race of grace, is to say no to ourselves. It is to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It is to mortify and to slay even the thoughts and the desires of the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, Paul told the church in Rome, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will live. Now, Paul is not teaching a salvation of works here. Mortifying, killing the desires of our flesh will not earn salvation. Even the Buddhist seeks to rid himself of all desire. It is not so, it is not so for the Christian. Killing sin is the outworking and response of someone who has been born again. One who has the Holy Spirit of God living and residing within them, they will desire to be holy. And we know that it is the purpose and the mind of God in and through sanctification to make us more like Christ, to make us look more like his son. That longing for holiness and for righteousness is placed within the believer to accomplish this very end. Let us remind ourselves of this glorious truth. Why are you here? Why did God save you? To turn you into his son. To make you more and more like Christ every day. That's the point of it all. Why the hardship, Lord? To make you more like Christ. Why did you give me this family or this job? To make you more like my son. I'm using it all to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I am working these circumstances, these challenges, hardships, pains, joys, calamities, relationships, all for your eternal good. That is the promise in the word of God. And beloved, it is either true this morning or it is not. And it, if it is true... If the promises are true, and if the overwhelming desire and will of God is to make me more like his son by any and all means necessary, how do we respond to that? We respond by making it our overwhelming desire and will in life to be like his son. 
And do we see what happens then? We have now aligned aligned our highest will with God's highest will. That is the place of blessing. That is where growth and change occurs. That is where victory over sin occurs. When we make it our highest affection and calling in life to be daily transformed into the image and person of Christ, we are in the same boat, rowing in the same direction as God Almighty for our lives. Our will and highest desire is now aligned with His will and highest desire. If you've been struggling in your walk for various reasons, if the dry seasons seem to far outweigh the green ones, if certain sins seem to be constantly besetting, what is your highest desire? That is the question to be applied to the heart. What strength for the day? What provision for the soul is given when we have the same desire for ourselves that God has for us? Lord, make us more like Christ this morning. Make it our highest will, our highest desire and affection. Amen? Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we completed the final scene of the pericope of the rich young ruler titled, I Gave Up Nothing. If you missed that last of that series, you can listen to it on Sermon Audio or Facebook. And we witnessed Peter and the disciples having watched the this scene with the rich young ruler, watching him walk away from Christ, from his call to abandon his master of wealth and to follow him. Of course, we know that he went away sad, for he had much property. But looking upon the scene, Peter wants to make sure that Jesus knows that they gave it all up. Peter says, we have left everything and followed you. Do you see what that rich man did? We didn't do that, Jesus. We're here. We have left everything and followed you. In fact, we saw in Matthew's account of this scene in Matthew 19, 27, Peter says, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Peter wants to make sure that the payout is waiting. You told the rich young ruler to leave all and follow you. Well, we've done that. You said to drop your nets and follow you. Here we are fishing for men. We all have wives and children at home. We've become poor for your sake. Peter and John left a lucrative fishing business. Matthew was a a wealthy tax collector. Here we are, following you around. Now, I don't mean to be rude, but what's the payout at the end of this? Jesus' response threw open the floodgates on God's economy. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in this age and the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What was Jesus saying here? Did Jesus all of a sudden turn into a prosperity preacher? Not at all. We saw two glorious truths in Jesus' response. First being that God is no man's debtor. Using an analogy of monetary terms, if every time you gave me $10, I gave you back $100, would it ever be possible for you to truly give something to me? Could you actually give something up for me? No. 
It must be this way due to the very character and nature of God. To give up something for someone is to put that person in your debt. And God is no man's debtor. Say, what do you mean? I can't truly give up something for Christ. Perhaps you lost your whole family. They all left me when I became a Christian. One can read over the latest issue of Voice of the Martyrs and see countless stories of this very sacrifice. People have given life and limb for the gospel. How can you make such a claim that we can never actually give anything up for God? Because that is the math our Lord gives us in Scripture. So what is the promise? What does this mean first in the here and now? We all appreciate the promise of the sweet by and by, of the promise of heaven and the joy and the relief that it brings, but what about the nitty-gritty now? I'm hurting now. I lost my family now. I've suffered wrong for my testimony for the gospel now. What glorious promise does Jesus give us? You will have a hundred brothers you didn't have before. You will have a hundred sisters you didn't have before. You will have a hundred homes to go to you didn't have before. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the church. He's talking about the family of Christ that surrounds you. Think about the first century believers. They heard of this man called Jesus and they left their village to go and hear what he had to say. And your spirit was stirred and you came to Christ in repentance and faith. But now what? There's no one to fellowship with back in your village. There are no other Christians. In fact, much like a, a Muslim convert, a convert from Judaism of the day would result in being ostracized from the community. I have no home. Jesus says you have a hundred homes. And many stayed in Jerusalem. Many Christians gathered there in the early church for just such a reason. They opened their homes and they had all things in common, Acts says. It's a beautiful promise for the believer. Whatever you lose is returned 100 fold. And it is given through his body, through the church. When you came to Christ, you were given an entire community you never had before. If you want to know if that's true, think of the faces here today. Jesus' promise is alive and well. And Jesus closes this scene, verse 31, saying, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus knows the heart. He sees the heart. He discerns the attentions and the motivations of the heart. And so it was with his disciples. The underlying desire, the, the dungeons of the heart where the dirt and the mold grow, still desire reward. They desire for themselves. Coming up as soon as next week, we will see this very desire start to crop up again. The disciples desiring position, desiring status and prestige. They want the payout. But in God's economy, down is up and up is down. It is the servant who will be honored. What the world esteems and puts up in billboards is not what the kingdom of heaven esteems. If the world is applauding you, if they're putting your name in lights... You've made a wrong turn somewhere. And there will be much more on that topic as we arrive there next week. Much more. Well, today in our text, we come upon a scene that, well, we may think a little bit redundant, honestly. If we've been following our journey through Mark, we see today something we've seen before. 
we have what is known as a passion prediction. Jesus once again predicting his coming death and resurrection. But we dare not think we've stumbled upon something common here today. What we are about to witness and hear is the very heartbeat of our hope. It is the proof of the planning and the provision of God to secure our salvation. It paints and reinforces a picture of a sovereign God who has planned for our redemption from the very foundation of the world. It is all according to plan. How amazing. So with that, let's look at our text this morning, beloved. Let's dive in. Mark 10, 32 through 34. Mark 10, 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, our third passion prediction in the Gospel of Mark. Lord, we ask that this would be fresh and new to us today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause this to come to life, that you would cause our mind's eye to see it and to love it and embrace it as our highest desire and affection this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause the arrow to find its mark as your word is made new to us today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, if any of you are fans of history, some of our most awe-inspiring stories come from those who show bravery in the face of danger. Of course, we read compelling stories of soldiers who run toward the gunfire and not away from it, those who press a position knowing that it means they will perish, we read of those who sacrificed themselves for others. How many stories from World War I and II and Iraq and Afghanistan where we're told of selfless bravery as a soldier charges a line alone, facing certain death to save his platoon. The other men watching in amazement as this warrior drives toward a selfless end. Of course, we think about our law enforcement who run toward the gunfire we think of our firefighters who run into the fire. They have our admiration and our awe to push toward the danger and not away from it. Well, so opens our scene this morning with the general leading the way headlong into danger. Let us look to verse 32. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. Pause there. There's a great deal for us to see here. You know, it's so helpful when Mark cooperates in setting our geography and scene for us. Here they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. 
We often notice in Scripture when they speak of going up to Jerusalem, they speak of going up to Jerusalem. Or if they're headed home, it says what? They're headed down from Jerusalem. Now, the direction doesn't really matter. You could be arriving from north, south, east, west. No matter what, you always go up to Jerusalem and you leave down from Jerusalem in Scripture. Now, the reason for this is both geographical and spiritual. Geographically, Jerusalem sits atop multiple ridges. It's about 2,500 feet above sea level. So no matter which direction you're coming from, you are going up to Jerusalem. And spiritually, there was only one temple. You ascended physically and spiritually to that single temple. In fact, 15 different psalms are labeled as a song of ascent. They've also been called songs of steps and pilgrims' songs. When worshipers would come and walk along the road up to Jerusalem during Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles or Booze or Pentecost, they would sing these psalms of ascent. And so they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, this was probably around the area of Jericho by now, but that draws us here. But the, what draws us here is, is not a geography lesson, but both the position of Jesus and the reactions of those who are following Jesus and of the disciples. So, first off, where is Jesus? And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Very good. This is given to us in the present tense, meaning this was a continual, this was a habitual action by Jesus. He would often walk out in front of the crowds and of his disciples. But this carries very special significance today in our scene, does it not? Where are they going? They are going to Jerusalem. He is marching to his death. And as we will see, it is not a march to a general death or possessing a, a simple knowledge of, of a coming death, which we all inherently possess. Our Lord and Savior knows the last detail of how he will ransom his people. The brutality and unspeakable pain that awaits. But Jesus was walking on ahead of them. Do we see Jesus in the back of the pack? being timidly drawn along to his fate, being cajoled or prodded, or is he confidently walking out front as he has always done? We mustn't miss this seemingly insignificant detail because it's the color of our entire scene. It is the destination. It is knowing the destination that gives light and meaning to not only Jesus leading the way out front, but as we will see in our text, the reactions of the people and of the disciples. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. Now that is a curious response. Amazement and fear. Let's break that down. Some important distinctions. First is the amazement. Now this is applied to the disciples. The disciples were amazed. And we have the fearful. The text says those who followed talking about the crowds that were also heading to Jerusalem. So the first question to be begged, why is one group amazed and the other fearful? The difference is information. One has it, the other doesn't. 
We have documented in the Gospels three passion predictions up to this point the disciples would have heard. Three times where Jesus told them exactly what must happen to him and why. And it often baffled them. It saddened them. Even now they don't completely understand it. But it has now been beat into their head like a drum. But yet if we only have three of these passion predictions recorded, how many do you think there actually were? Many, likely. Many. So why are they amazed now? Why? Because the disciples are now the soldiers sitting in the foxhole while they watch their brave general get out of the trench and he's charging the enemy line. We watched in amazement. He has no fear. We know what's coming. He knows what's coming. And he walks out ahead of us. Do not fear. Does Jesus know something greater than this mortal coil? What is the focus, the drive, the resolve of someone who can lead the way right into the jaws of the enemy and right into certain death? This is not just Jesus' position in line on the road. Mark means to convey much more than that. And the disciples were amazed. There goes the general. He is rushing headlong into oncoming fire. How about the crowd? How about the larger following that was behind Jesus, also on their way up to Jerusalem? It says those who followed were fearful. Fearful. Phobeo, meaning where we get the word phobia from. This is a word that has a, a pretty large semantic range, though. It can carry a lot of different implications and, and different levels of severity. Now, here does it mean that the crowd is cowering in fear. It's not so. This is more of a confusion. It's the element of the unknown. Of course, half of the fear in any situation is what? It's the unknown of a situation. It's confusing. One theologian says this was a baffling fear the crowd was having. But why? Why? The crowd has been walking behind Jesus talking with the disciples, listening to Jesus' teaching. They had heard the rumors, and as we know from earlier messages, the Messianic temperature in Israel was red hot, especially around the time of Passover. Could this be him? Have you heard about this guy from Galilee? Could that be him? Looking for the promised one, looking for the conquering military Messiah, it was real, and it was prevalent. It was part of everyday life and conversation as they lived under the oppression and the occupation of the Romans. So here's this crowd following Jesus, and he's saying all of these things, and he's backing it up with miracles that they've either seen or they've heard about. And now instead of building an army to liberate us, he says there are people in Jerusalem who want to kill him. And guess where he's going? Jerusalem. Fearful, meaning baffled, meaning confused. It wasn't until very long ago that the disciples themselves were, were rid of this, this false notion of what Messiah would do. And it was not easy. It was ingrained in them since childhood. It was the culture they bathed in every day. The crowd thinks this Jesus from Galilee has real potential. 
So why on earth is he marching out in front of us with determination to the very place they say will kill him? That's the fear of the crowd. That's the amazement, the awe of the disciples. Look back to our text here, last part of verse 32. Watch how Jesus responds to both the amazement and to the fearfulness. And again, again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. First, what did Jesus do with the fear of the crowd? Answer, nothing. The time for that is over. This time, indeed all the way back to the middle of chapter 9, if you recall, this time is to pour into these disciples. Time is short. The crowd is going to think what they're going to think. They're going to do what they're going to do. I'm not focused on them. I'm focused on you, my disciples, and the road ahead. To ready you for the battle ahead. Praying for you, as Jesus told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, that your strength will not fail you. He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. This verb for happen, it means an unfolding, a revealing, a coming together of events. The grand stage for the greatest sacrifice, the greatest exchange was about to go into the final act. The plan orchestrated from Genesis 3 when God told Satan that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the protoevangelium, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. It will happen. While the Old Testament threw shadows upon the wall of my coming death, here you will see clearly it is unfolding. It is coming together. The final act of the divine play of redemption. This is going to happen to me. He has pulled his disciples to the side. This is for their ears only. But why not advertise it? Why not sound it from the highest mountaintop? We know that what he's about to say is revealing the very mechanism by which God is going to reconcile sinful people back into himself. Isn't that something that's worth telling the whole crowd? Do we see many times where God conceals information from people? Do we see times where the gospel is concealed from people by God himself, by Jesus himself? Absolutely. As recently as the rich young ruler, Jesus concealed the good news of the gospel from him. He simply gave him the law, no gospel. As we saw, we cannot grab hold of the good news of the gospel unless we first accept the bad news. That we have broken God's law, that we stand condemned, that we deserve death, that we are willing to abandon all to acquire the pearl of great price. And of course, the rich young ruler would not do that. You could have given him the good news of the gospel, and it would have been wasted. We do not waste something so precious. We do not throw the precious pearl of the gospel before those who will simply trample it underfoot. And that's not elitism. That's the example we see from Christ. And here now, 
except for some very narrow instances going forward, between here and Calvary, it's all about preparation. Not only of himself, but of the disciples. So he pulls them aside. For your ears only. So now we're in the huddle. What does Jesus say? Verse 33. Jesus begins with, Behold. We dare not gloss over that, beloved. Every word in Scripture is there for our benefit, for our edification and our growth. Behold. That word sets the tone for what is about to be said. It's bringing us into focus. Spurgeon reminds us, quote, that behold is a word of wonder. It is intended to excite admiration. Wherever you see it hung out in Scripture, it is like an ancient signboard signifying that there are rich wares within, close quote. Let us not miss these important cues. Behold, we listen up. We pay attention. Riches are sure to follow. Behold. We are going up to Jerusalem. What a curious thing to say. Did they not know where they were going? We must assume that they did. Why say we are going up to Jerusalem? Because we need to frame what follows correctly. Now, as we know, we, we often open up our messages with geography, don't we? And many of you have shared how, how helpful that is, how it gives the, the following message its light and its context. And Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem. Meaning, get your mind thinking in this direction. Listen, beloved, why do we go to Jerusalem? We go there for Passover. And what do we bring for Passover to Jerusalem? You bring a sacrifice. You bring a lamb, a Passover lamb. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide the lamb. We are going up to Jerusalem, disciples, and your lamb is with you. Jesus goes on, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. Pause there for a moment. Let us first see how Jesus refers to himself. We have seen this a number of times before. The Son of Man. This is a title used 88 times in the New Testament. Is Jesus' primary title and name for himself. Now the significance of this title cannot be missed. It's a complete message unto itself, but it truly is all-encompassing. It tells us four things about Christ. Four things. To be the Son of Man is to first reveal and accentuate Jesus' humanity. Jesus Christ was a human being. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. God in human flesh. How important is that to having a right Christology? Paramount. How important is Jesus' humanity in this context? That Jesus would feel every pain. 
that he was acquainted with all of our griefs, all of our sorrows, that he was tempted in every way yet without sin. Out walking in front of us on the road to Jerusalem is the Son of Man. His divinity will not lessen the pain of a spike being driven into his hands and his feet. His title, Son of Man, shows us Jesus' humanity. Now consider here, might his humanity lend color and depth and meaning to his march toward Calvary? Unbelievably so. Being the Son of Man shows us Jesus' humility. His humility. Michael Haldman writes, quote, The second person of the Trinity, eternal in nature, left heaven's glory and took on human flesh, becoming the Son of Man, born in a manger and despised and rejected by mankind. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. The Son of Man ate and drank with sinners. The Son of Man suffered at the hands of men. This intentional lowering of his status from King of Heaven to Son of Man is the epitome of humility, close quote. Does Christ's humility lend color and depth and meaning to his march toward Calvary? Unbelievably so. Son of Man shows us Jesus' humanity. It shows us his humility. Third, it shows us his deity. Jesus is the supreme example of all that God intended his creation of man to be. Not to mean that Jesus was created. Of course, he was not. Colossians 2.9 tells us in him all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus was not created. He was the creator. Colossians 1.16. But indeed it would take the perfection of Christ to represent us as our substitute on the cross. The Son of Man points to his deity. Jesus said of himself that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Only God can do that. That the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Mark 2. At his trial before the high priest, Jesus said, I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Might his deity lend color and depth and meaning to his march toward Calvary? Unbelievably so. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. We see his humanity, his humility, his deity. And finally, and most, perhaps most in focus here, the Son of Man as a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus pulls directly from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there was before me one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It is my humanity that marches before you to Jerusalem. It is my humility that marches before you to Jerusalem. It is my deity that drives my authority. And it is prophecy that points the way. The Son of Man. The Son of Man will what? He will be betrayed to the chief priests 
and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles. What else? Verse 34. Verse 34. And they will mock him and spit him, him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. <laughs> we could camp on this for a month and we would not begin to mine the treasures and the implications of this, our third passion prediction. But beloved, I want us to take away two observations, two applications here. One, we serve a God who plans, not a God who reacts. What comfort might the believer draw from that this morning? We went all the way back to Genesis 3, and we found the first gospel, did we not? The very first blueprint for how God would reconcile a fallen man to a holy God, a plan to be both just and the justifier. Jesus is not speaking in generalities here. This is as specific as can be. This is the architect describing his building. He knows it better than any because he designed this. None of this is new revelation. The prophecies about these events are all over the Old Testament. And dude, Luke 18.31 tells us that all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. If one were only to read Zechariah 9 through 13, all the things you would see, we would see the triumphal entry prophesied. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We would see there 30 shekels of silver for his betrayal. We would see that Messiah would be deserted by his friends. We would see that his side would be pierced. The Psalms that would be read every Sabbath, every Sabbath in the synagogue, in the ears of every Jew, would have told them that Messiah would be crucified before the method of crucifixion ever existed. Describing in detail of that day, listen to excerpts of Psalm 22. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groanings. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. They open wide their mouth at me. As a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Beloved, crucifixion did not exist at that time. It was unknown. I can count all of my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
who would see in the same Psalter that none of his bones would be broken, that he would be given vinegar to drink, and indeed that he would rise from the dead. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And from thence, when he is risen, where shall he go? In the same Psalter, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Many, many more. The same author of Scripture who spoke in the Psalter walks ahead on the road today, gathering his disciples, telling them yet again with all detail and all specificity what must occur. Oh, what comfort we might draw from that. Nothing has caught Jesus off guard. Michael and Gabriel are not up in heaven wringing their hands. How might that impact our daily lives as believers? Does it speak to even the smallest happenings in our life? You know, many will have noticed our banner that we have up here for our series on Mark. Mark aims to show in his gospel Jesus as the suffering servant. But beloved, Mark is not the first to do that. It is not original to him. It comes from long before. Indeed, if we will look at one of the greatest, most well-known prophecies of the suffering and crucifixion of the Messiah, Isaiah 53, you will notice it is also titled, The Suffering Servant. Walk with me, beloved. We see described in Isaiah 53 a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. This is 700 years before Christ. All us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin of us all, to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, and yet he was with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But, beloved, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. That's you. 
He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. But beloved, those of you who know their scripture well, you may have noticed that I skipped the first verse of Isaiah 53. Because it opens with the question that ultimately must be reckoned with. It opens with the only question with which all peoples must ultimately give an answer. Isaiah 53 begins, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Over 400 messianic prophecies of intricate detail laid out for us in the Old Testament. Jesus in our text today laying out with brutal detail how he will be tortured and killed and how he will rise. But who has believed our report this morning? The omniscient God, the all-knowing God, has decreed the end from the beginning. He has shouted it in creation. He has written it in his word. He has emblazoned it upon our consciences and upon our hearts. But who has believed our report? Dear saints, here on this road past Jericho, up to Jerusalem, the plan of the ages, once again, spoken with all certainty. Nothing has changed since Zechariah or David in the Psalms or Isaiah put ink to scroll. It's all according to plan. It's all according to plan. And if that is so, beloved, it means that he is alive this morning. That he is seated at the right hand of God and that he is praying for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before your throne this morning to say that we believe your report. We believe your report. Lord, your arm, your actions, what you have decreed from nations past, from ages past, over every nation, tribe, and tongue. Lord, we believe your report. Lord, not one prophecy was left wanting. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we consider the truth of your word, as we watched it lived out in our very lives, as we watch it lived out in our brothers and sisters that we have now in Christ, as we watch it in our own consciences, in our own hearts, Lord, we ask that it would be real to us this morning. We ask that your word would come to life and that would be the director and the guide for all that concerns us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us until we can meet again. For those who are out and, and visiting, we want to pray for Diana as well for her funeral this afternoon. The God of all comfort be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.